Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. What a great crowd here this morning on a long weekend. Um, We've spent this last month, uh, the month of February, in John chapter 10, looking at Jesus' claim that he might come so that we could have life and have it abundantly. We've been focused on that word, abundant. And we've been studying this chapter in depth, uh, learning about Jesus and his claims to be the gate for the sheep and his claims to be the good shepherd. It's also been a good opportunity for us to expand our language a little bit when we talk about our own mission statement here as a church. Our mission statement here is to be a a community, a church that is flourishing together in Jesus Christ. And that concept of flourishing is really the same word as Jesus' word, abundant. Flourishing, abundance. So I started this series by stating that we can be clear on our mission as a church, as individuals. But when we realize that the journey is difficult, it can be hard for us. Maybe we realize that we're ill-prepared to actually journey in this abundant life. So we've studied the words of Jesus and we tried to identify lessons that are going to help us be better prepared for a life of flourishing, that abundant life that Jesus offers us. And we've had a lesson each week. The, the first lesson, just by review, was uh, that a flourishing life is only found in Jesus. It would be naive of us to underestimate the other voices that compete for for us, for our attention, that compete to lead in our lives. Uh, We ought not underestimate the power that those voices can have in our hearts and in our minds. But none of those voices are going to lead to the abundant life, life to the full. Only Jesus can do that because he's the gate for the sheep. He's the keeper of the abundant life. He's what allows us to go in and out and find pasture. And then lesson number two last week is a flourishing life is focused on others. We're lured so often into the belief that the life abundant is when things are good for us. When we can experience comfort and and conflict is gone and we just feel settled. That's when we must be in the abundant life. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints for us. Jesus is the good shepherd precisely because he lays down his life for the sheep. So our abundant life comes when we recognize all that Jesus has done for us, his sacrifice for us, and then we live a life that's focused on other people in turn. And this week we get our third lesson, but first let's finish out John chapter 10. If you would stand uh, for our scripture reading this morning, it's a little bit of a long one. You can follow along uh, in your pew Bibles. They're red, should be one in front of you somewhere. Or you can just actively listen as I read John chapter 10, verses 19 through 40 to hear God's word for us this morning. Again, the Jews were divided because of Jesus' words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and he's out of his mind. Why listen to him? But others were saying, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long are you going to keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I have told you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify to me, but you do not believe. Because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. And at this, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. And Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said I'm God's son? If I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe in me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him, and they were saying, John performed no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Lord Jesus Christ. Let me see it. I've been sharing a, a couple different journeys uh, in my life as we talk about this journey of the abundant life in Jesus. Let me tell you another one that's a beloved story in my family. When I was seven, my parents took me to Disney World. My brother was nine at the time. Uh, and my brother was being a little difficult. Maybe you've been through this, parents here, or maybe this was you as a kid. Uh, my brother was being a little difficult because he was scared of roller coasters but wouldn't admit it. Right? So he would find any excuse to not go on roller coaster rides. My dad was encouraging him to try some new things throughout the trip, but Nate really was not budging at all. And it was our last day in the Magic Kingdom, and we walked by Space Mountain in the afternoon. And my brother actually said, oh, I would go to Space Mountain. My dad was like, really? Go to Space Mountain? And Nate responded, yes, I heard it's very educational. It's like this mountain that you walk through, and it teaches you about the planets and the stars and the galaxies, and there's like cool things on the wall, and you can learn a lot. I'd be really interested in that. And my dad, instead of correcting him, was like, okay, great, let's go. Um, So we wove our way through this backed-up line, tons of people waiting to get on the ride. Nate was completely oblivious to the noise of screaming people in front of him as they were enjoying the roller coaster. And it wasn't until we reached the very entrance to the roller coaster that Nate realized that he was severely misguided in his understanding of what Space Mountain was, And he turned to my dad with horror in his eyes, and he's like, we got to turn around. I can't do this. We got to go. We got to turn. Can we go back? And my my dad, again, wasn't exact. I'm sure there was a way out, but he was not exactly truthful when he said, no, we can't do that. Look at all these people. I don't know how we'd even do that. Let's just get on the ride, and let's see how it goes. Now, as you can likely guess, uh, we went on the ride. Nate had a blast. We went on it two more times. We basically shut down the park uh, on Space Mountain, right? But I, I share this story because I think about waiting in that line, and, and, and I, as I'm thinking about our text today, 
and all that it means for us. I want to ask, how often do you feel like you wake up to the fact that following Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is not exactly what you were expecting? Like you're in line and you realize, this is the wrong ride. I didn't sign up for this. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I thought this was going to be a nice, peaceful journey. I thought this was something where I would like learn some things and it would be nice and calm and settled. I wasn't expecting a bumpy up and down roller coaster here. I've said it many times in the last couple years here in this pulpit, but we have to combat the idea that is so prevalent that life with Jesus is this chart with a big red line that's moving up and to the right. Jesus' gospel is not one of earthly prosperity. It is not primarily one of comfort. It is a gospel that is complicated. And that leads me to our third lesson, which we can't avoid in this passage, and that's this. A flourishing life in Jesus is both compelling and confounding. Both compelling and confounding. Look at Jesus' own life and ministry, especially here in this passage. John 9 is, is, is sort of the, what, what led to John 10 here. John 9, he, Jesus heals this man that's born blind from birth. It's this amazing miracle. And you might expect that the people would realize after he does something like this, like, this guy is truly special. You might think that. And some did, but many questioned whether the man was even born blind at all. Was he faking it? Is this guy faking blindness, right? Some recognize the healing that Jesus had done in this man, but they go, I don't like the authority with which he does that. I think there's some dark magic going on here. And so Jesus spends John 10 talking about his authority, saying, I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. And knowing what we all know about Jesus, we would expect the people to celebrate the presence of God among them in the person of Jesus. I would like to think that if I was there experiencing that, there's no way I couldn't say yes to Jesus, right? But that's only partially what happens. Look at our text again, verses 19 through 21, where it says, again, the Jews were divided because of Jesus' words. Divided. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's out of his mind. Why would we listen to him? And then others were saying, these aren't the words of someone who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So what's happening here? Some found his words and actions compelling, and it led them to sincere faith. And then some found them confounding, and it led them to contempt, even to the point where they're picking up stones to try and stone him. Is Jesus a man of unity and peace and harmony? Well, yeah, but that's not really the reality of his coming. And if that's shocking for you to hear a pastor say that, even more shocking is Jesus' words himself in Luke chapter 12. Listen to this. Jesus says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it's completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Yes, Jesus actually said that. What is Jesus saying here? He can't possibly mean what we think he's meaning, right? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's owning the reality of his life as one of stress because there's work to do that some are going to accept and some are simply not going to accept. In this sense, what he's doing in, in Luke 12 is he's stepping into the prophetic tradition that's laid for him in the Old Testament and he's saying, I, my heart is for peace, but I didn't come to bring peace. Instead, division's going to come because the ministry of Jesus, the truth of his gospel, is going to necessarily divide. He didn't come for division. 
But without repentance of the people, division will come with it. And I think that's the hardest part of it for me as, as a follower of Jesus is that the same actually gets transferred on to us. Often, often thank God on a much smaller scale. But, but one of the markers, if we're to take this text to, to task, is, is, is one of the markers of really living a flourishing, abundant life is that we're going to find that us living out our faith in the world is compelling to some people and it's confounding to others. I am painfully aware of this as a pastor. I'm sure my colleagues would share the same. Often when I tell people that I'm a pastor, by the way, I don't usually lead with that. It, it comes out in conversation. But when, out in the community, when I tell people that I'm a pastor, I'm often received warmly, which is great. But more often than I would like, I'm not received that warmly. Very seldom are people like unkind, overtly unkind. But sometimes when they learn about my profession and what I do for a living and, and what's most important to me, I can see just this hardness come over their face. A deep reservation, a sense that this conversation and this relationship is not going any deeper because I do not trust you. And that hurts. I wish it wasn't that way. I know that some of you who are earnestly seeking to live out your faith in your life, you may have family members or coworkers or people in your life where you go, yeah, I know that reality. It's moments like this where I want to say, I got on the wrong ride. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. Maybe, just maybe, you're like me in that you like when people like you. And you like when there's peace in relationships. And you like when people receive you well. I think we all do. But remember our lesson. A flourishing life is both compelling and confounding. It's compelling because it's lived out in the whole of our lives for people to see. And it's confounding because Jesus' own ministry and words were so confounding. If your faith is only compelling, if you tell me, no, you know, I live out my faith and people are only ever compelled towards further faith, then my guess is that you're only presenting peaceable and encouraging parts of Jesus' life and ministry. And if you come to me and you go, well, my, my faith is only confounding to everyone that I come, come across, then you're likely presenting only the confrontational and convicting parts of Jesus' life. But John himself says at the very beginning of his gospel, he says, Jesus, the word is full of what? Grace and truth. So we need to be as well. And unfortunately, that will naturally divide at times. There is a context to this text I think uh, will be particularly helpful to you. I know it was to me. In verse 22, it tells us that Jesus was in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. That's when he was in the temple, the Feast of Dedication. This is where he's confronted with the Jews about his role as the Messiah. There's layers of history uh, and context here that are actually really helpful for us. Uh, the Feast of Dedication was not a feast that was prescribed in the Old Testament like many of the other feasts uh, during Jesus' day because it was, a it was a baby holiday. It was a relatively new Jewish holiday, uh, only a couple, uh, uh, 150 years old. It's actually still celebrated today. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. So prior to 165 BC, the Jews in Judea were living under the rule of a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greco-Roman king, um, and he was not a good king. Uh, his name gives you a sense of his hubris. Antiochus, Antiochus is the first name. Epiphanes was a title. Epiphany, where we get the word epiphany for us, means revelation or divine revelation. What is he saying? He's saying, God is revealed in me, Antiochus the divine revelation, that there's nothing godly about his rule. 
In fact, he's known best for taking control of the temple in Jerusalem, ridding it of its holy furniture, its relics. He forbid the worship of Yahweh God in any way. He erected statues to himself and to other Greek gods in the temple. He made it a temple to the god Zeus with a huge inscription outside. And worst of all, he took the Torahs, the holy scripture of the Jewish people. He laid them at the foot of the altar. He brought in a pig, which is the most unclean animal in, in, in the Jewish religion. He slaughtered the pig on the altar, and he let the blood of that pig soak the Torahs. Total desecration. A complete offense to the people of God. And remember that this temple was not just one church like we think about church buildings here today. This was the temple in Jerusalem. This was the place that housed the very presence of God. And here it's been desecrated. So in response to this persecution, to this horrible offense, four Jewish brothers led by a guy named Judas Maccabee recruited an army of guerrilla freedom fighters and they fought for three straight years against all odds until they recaptured the temple from the Greco-Syrian army. They cleansed the temple of all of its pagan worship, of all the statues that were there. They put back in the holy furniture and they dedicated the temple in November of 165 BC, consecrating it yet again as the very presence of God. But there was one pro problem. There was a thing that was supposed to be in there. It's called the eternal flame that, that recognizes the eternal presence of God. But there was only oil, because it had been spoiled by the army, only oil for one day for it to burn. And so they lit the fire, and miraculously, it lasted for eight days until they could replenish it with anointed oil, which is why uh, in Hanukkah it's commemorated by a menorah with eight candles. So what does all this have to do with the narrative of Jesus as Messiah? What does it have to do with our lesson today that an abundant life is both uh, compelling and confounding? Well, New Testament scholar Craig Kester makes um, an awesome, poignant observation about this text. And it's this, that the backdrop of the festival of dedication actually compounds the difficulty of putting Jesus into existing categories. He makes the point that the Feast of Dedication, this holiday, was really, really popular among the Jewish people. It was one of the most popular uh, holidays at the time. People got really excited about it. And part of the reason was because it celebrated this story, this narrative that had a super clear villain and a super clear hero, right? Antiochus Epiphanes is the villain. He is a villainous blasphemer. He called himself God. He desecrated the temple. And then Judas Maccabee was a hero, not just a hero, but the best kind, a military hero, right? And the story created this distinct alternative, either a hero or a blasphemer. That's what they were really celebrating. But here John paints a picture of Jesus. Imagine him on the Feast of Dedication. He paints him as the Messiah who is not a national military hero, right? He's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Nor is he a blasphemer. So when the crowds plead, tell us plainly, Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? Just say it. He responds, I told you already, I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm not a military hero. In fact, I, I lay down my life willingly for other people. I'm not a blasphemer. How could I be? Because the Father and I are one. It was this phrase that put them over the edge, right? It was that statement that, that caused these people to pick up stones. Why? 
Because doesn't that sound like the exact claim that Antiochus Epiphanes was making? Doesn't that sound like I'm the divine revelation of God? It's me. That kind of comment could get you killed. So the people picked up stones to kill Jesus. And he makes an impassioned claim from Scripture. I wish I could go into it. It's kind of involved. But, but this, this, this impassioned claim from the Psalms that he's not blaspheming. And then he appeals to the works of God and says, hey, even if you don't believe what I'm saying, that's okay. Believe in what you see. Believe the works. Because they're going to ultimately lead you to the Father because that's where they come from. So Jesus barely escapes their presence. He heads east of the River Jordan where the text tells us that despite the unbelief of many in Jerusalem, many others did come to believe and trust in him. So no matter what Jesus says or does, it seems, in his ministry, he is going to be compelling to some and he's going to be confounding to others. And I think one of the more fascinating things as I was pondering this this week is the ways in which the Jews in Jerusalem, remember this is a baby religion or a baby holiday. It hasn't been around that long, right? But, but the ways in which the Jews in Jerusalem apparently forgot what their holiday was actually all about. They make it about this, this story of a hero defeating a villain. And that's the subtext in which they approach Jesus, right? You're the villain. But the festival of dedication was really not about the Maccabean War. It was about the dedication of the temple. That's what it was about. It was about a consecrated commitment to the presence of God. It was about people being so overwhelmed by God's eternal presence that it leads them to worship and to holy living. So they made it about who's the hero and who's the villain rather than recognizing the very presence of God, the living temple in flesh and blood, the eternal light of the world that was standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus. Friends, does this resonate with any of you here today in America in 2022? Are we not swimming in a culture that is in, acutely intent on categorizing people as villains or heroes, as right or wrong, as good or bad? Are we not living in a culture that constructs boxes to place everybody and everything in so that we can just manage life? Our culture says that it's either good or bad, that you are wholly compelling or you are wholly confounding. All the while, here's Jesus who refuses the boxes that we place before him to go into. He will not fit into our hard and fast alternatives of what we think is good and bad. And he offers us the eternal presence of God instead of easy, binary, cheap answers. He's not here for our comfort and our happiness. He is not here for our shame. He is here to offer us the abundant, flourishing life that only comes through a dedicated commitment to the very presence of God. So, how do we navigate? How do we navigate this aspect of the abundant life that's really hard? When we not only find Jesus' claim upon us to be compelling and confounding, but we realize that our lives that are lived in Jesus are going to be compelling and confounding to the world around us. What do we do when our knee-jerk reaction is to flee, to get off the ride, to get out of line, and to get out of there and say, I never signed up for this? How do we accept the reality as part of our flourishing, abundant life? Three things, briefly, from this text in closing. The first is this. This is really important. Remember who it is that you are seeking to please. Just in general in your life, who are you seeking to please? 
Jesus never told people what they wanted to hear. I, I, I can read through the Gospels. I can't identify one time where I'm like, he just told that person what they wanted to hear. He is not a people pleaser. That's not one of Jesus' qualities. He was focused solely on pleasing God, his Father, his Heavenly Father. And Jesus appeals to his relationship with the Father at least a half a dozen times just in John chapter 10 alone. So as we navigate a life of following Jesus, we have to be reminded that we are trying to please God and not humans. This is going to allow us, if we can remember this, to courageously bring forward the most compelling aspects of Jesus' gospel in a gracious way. But it's also going to give us courage to be willing to confound others for the sake of pleasing God. The need to please other people is a vicious cycle, and it needs to be broken in our lives. Now, this is not a license to be unkind. Let me be really clear on that. It's a license to allow Jesus to speak through you as you leave the results to him. Second thing from this text is recognize God's presence, which is always with you. Jesus was confident not only in his Father's plan for him, his will for him, but also with God's presence with him. In in a world that, again, clings to, to heroes and villains, let's follow the model of Jesus who transcends categories and cling instead to the presence of God. When we're convinced that God's everlasting presence, the light of his eternal life is with us, It frees us to live for him knowing that we're not alone. Whether our faith is greeted warmly by others with earnest conviction or people pick up stones, figuratively or literally, we can remain confident that Jesus has gone before us and his presence is ever with us. Third, continue to appeal to the good works of God. I keep pondering that word that Jesus says at the end of this chapter. It's one that I know I don't fully understand. I'm going to spend my life continuing to try and understand when he says, even if you don't believe in me, believe the works. Because they're going to lead you to the Father, because I and the Father are one. So even when we deal with places and people in our lives who are uncompelled, who are resistant, those who are confounded, We can still show them the good works of God, even through our kindness. Notice that Jesus does not say, forget you people. You're hopeless. Even when people have stones ready to throw at him, he does not do that. He says, hey, even if you reject me, believe the works. (laughs) Believe the miracles. Believe the healing. Believe the teaching." Believe the transformation that you see. I know you're like me, and I have numerous people in my life who are utterly unconvinced about Jesus, maybe even resistant to my faith in Jesus. That can hurt. That can burden me. But God is not finished with them yet. He's working. He's revealing himself. He is the great epiphany, and he is showing himself in their lives. And my role is to appeal to those good works, to appeal to God's movement in their lives, trusting that God is going to transform their hearts from being confounded to being compelled by the claims of Jesus. And that's something all of us can do, patiently, graciously, humbly. So, 
at the end of our journey through John chapter 10, I'm aware of how much more there is to be mined from this awesome passage. But we are beginning our journey, our Lenten journey, next Sunday through the entire gospel of John. So I I want you to continue to go back to John 10 because these principles that we've learned here are going to guide us as we move forward. Because really, the gospel of John from the very beginning is about calling all people not to just appreciate Jesus or agree with Jesus, but to see his works. It's structured around his miracles, his works, his signs, his wonders. To see them and then to hear his words and to respond in faith and surrender. That is the source of the abundant life, the flourishing life. It is not an easy journey. There are going to be times when we wonder what in the world we sign up for. But there is no other journey that leads us to the truly abundant life that comes through Jesus. So to close this morning in response, I have just a a prayer for us that's sort of like a review of the last few weeks. And hopefully this is a prayer that resonates not only in this place but in your heart. So would you stand with me as we recite this prayer together? I'll have you respond to me in the bold print. Let's pray. Lord, when life is crowded with noise, we choose to Lord, when life offers many routes to the good life, Lord, when life tells us to be concerned with me, myself, and I. Lord, when life tells us that comfort is really the end goal. Lord, when we are offered sources of life that are fleeting, we choose the abundant life that can only come. May it be so.